Two of the most common types of accordions are piano accordions, which have black and white piano keys, and button accordions, which, you guessed it, just have buttons. Thing is, there's actually no real standard for the size, design, or sound of an accordion, which means that each one is a little different than the others. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and I'm so glad that you joined me to talk about music played on piano accordion, music played on button accordion, and music played on concertina, trichotixa, harmonium, and bandoneon. This whole show is supported by listeners like you. No sponsors, no ads, no corporate money or influence, just me and all of you and Strong Songs. If you'd like to keep that going, go to patreon.com slash strong songs to become a patron or find the link for one-time donations in the show notes. On this episode, oh man, it's time to talk about one of the greatest, most enduring, and funniest songwriters of the modern era, a singer I've loved since I was a little kid, and for whom my love has only grown. So, let's pack up the car, grab some pickled wieners, and hit the road. Anyone who's spent any time perusing the pages of the Guinness Book of World Records has probably asked themselves some version of the same question. Why? Why do these people do these things? What compels them to craft the world's biggest pancake or stuff hundreds of straws into their mouth or break dozens of toilet seats with their head? What on earth could make a person decide to do that kind of thing? The answer, of course, to paraphrase the famous saying, is because it was there. And there's a sort of frank absurdity to that fact. It's a testament to the weird, personal ambitions within each of us that there are people out there willing to undergo such feats all in the name of, well, all in the name of having done it because it was there. There are plenty of songs written to commemorate great deeds, noble and historic acts of heroism, but the more banal feats are feats nonetheless, and they deserve their own sort of tribute, written by their own sort of singer. Call him the patron saint of silliness, the bard of the absurd. And as it turns out, that description perfectly applies to a songwriter that I've loved since I was a kid, whose work has grown and changed alongside me lo these many years. And if I were going to nominate one person to write a tribute to the record-chasing dreamers out there, the folks whose obsessions led them to the peaks of their own small, weird mountains, well, I'd choose him. And while he could have written a tribute to the biggest pancake ever flipped, or the biggest sweater ever knit, or so many other giant oddities you can find around America and the rest of the world, he picked something infinitely stranger, infinitely more specific, and, to my childhood self when I first heard this song, infinitely more enchanting. It wasn't the biggest bowl of brine in North Dakota. It wasn't the biggest Dolly Parton shrine in Pensacola. It was something way, way better. This is the biggest bottle of wine in Minnesota. I tell you, it's the biggest bottle of wine in Yes, it's finally time to talk about the great Weird Al Yankovic and his 1989 tribute to the biggest ball of twine in Minnesota. And in the process, we're going to talk about the grand tradition of through-composed story songs and the thoughtfulness and sophistication with which Weird Al approaches even his silliest songs. What was he trying to prove? Who was he trying to impress? 
I'm not sure when it was that I realized that the biggest ball of twine in Minnesota was my favorite Weird Al song, but, well, it is. It's it's my favorite Weird Al song. Well, I had two weeks of vacation time coming after working all year down at Big Roy's Heating and Plumbing. There are many contenders, definitely, particularly from the five or six years in the late 80s and early 90s when I was the exact right age to be fully charmed by Weird Al's enthusiastic parodies and by his skewering of an MTV-centric music culture and general pop culture that I found alienating, at least to that age. I loved his unabashed nerdiness. It won't surprise any of you, probably, to hear that I was a pretty big nerd as a kid, and there was just something about Weird Al that I found appealing and even empowering. Uh, 1992's Off the Deep End and 1993's Alapalooza featured plenty of memorable tunes, and those were both albums that I really liked. But there's always just been something special about 1989's UHF. It was my first encounter with Weird Al and one of the first albums that I ever bought with my own money. The full title is UHF, the original motion picture soundtrack and other stuff, because it's the soundtrack to the 1989 Weird Al movie of the same name. And as it says on the tin, it also includes other stuff, just some Weird Al songs that weren't in the movie, but that he wanted to put on an album. That's the title track, which is kind of just a banger on its own terms. There were plenty of other songs on the album as well. There was Attack of the Radioactive Hamsters from a Planet Near Mars, the kind of song named the 10-year-old me didn't realize was a possibility. There were also parody songs galore. There was the R.A.M. parody, Spam, of their song Stand, which you already heard. And the album kicks off with a version of the Dire Straits song Money for Nothing with the lyrics from the Beverly Hillbillies theme. I remember being knocked out by this when the album kicked off with it because it was my introduction to this song. I'd never heard Money for Nothing, and I bet I'm not alone in having been introduced to a number of classic songs through Weird Al parodies. And something funny that I didn't know at the time is this is actually Dire Straits' Mark Knopfler on guitar. One of his conditions for letting Weird Al do the parody was that he would get to reprise his classic guitar part. Look here, people. Listen to my story. A little story about a man named Jim. There were also parodies of Tone Loke, Fine Young Cannibals, audio from a bunch of the fake ads from the movie, and a polka medley of Rolling Stones songs called Hot Rocks Polka that you might be scandalized to learn was my introduction to a significant number of deeper cuts from the Rolling Stones catalog. I know it's only rock and roll, but I like it. So as you can hear, it was all pretty wacky. It was pretty in-your-face stylistically. But then, at the end of the album, after a whole bunch of wacky voices and slide whistles and fart noises, comes this song that's much more low-key, almost stayed by comparison with everything that came before it. And it would be that song that, all these years later, still holds a special place in my musical memory. Well, I had to vacation time coming after working all year down at Big Roy's eating and plumbing. From the start, the joke isn't immediately clear. It's just an ordinary working guy planning a vacation with his family. If you could go anywhere in this great big world now, where'd you like to go to? He said, Dad, we want to see the biggest bottle of twine in Minnesota. 
I didn't know how to describe it at the time, but I found myself drawn to this song. I listened to it over and over, eventually learning all of the lyrics, and there are a lot of lyrics in this song. And like I've said, it sticks with me to this day. And the reason for that, I've realized, is that while it's a funny song, it doesn't just tell a joke, it tells a story. Now, Weird Al is best known for his straight-up parodies, where he meticulously recreates the parts of a famous song and adds his own lyrics, usually about something very silly. Songs like the Beverly Hills theme that I mentioned from UHF, his similar treatment of the Gilligan's Island theme set to Tone Loke's Funky Cold Medina, his recounting of the story of Star Wars Episode One set to Don McLean's American Pie, a significant number of songs about lunch meat, and so many others. Those parodies get the most attention, but the majority of Weird Al's songs fit under three broad categories of parody, and that type, the one-to-one recreation with different lyrics, that's only one of them. He also does polka covers, like that Rolling Stones one from the UHF soundtrack, or this one from 1992's Off the Deep End. Weird Al is a pretty brilliant accordionist, and he'll sing medleys with original lyrics and chords, and the joke is that every song has been transformed into the same kind of goofy, really frantic, upbeat polka. And then he also does a third type of parody, and that's the one that I actually find the most compelling. He does style parodies where he writes an original song that's designed to evoke a famous artist or musical style. This is Dare to be Stupid, a 1985 style parody of Devo off of Val's album of the same name, and it's a remarkable stylistic recreation. I'll never forget what Devo frontman Mark Mothersbaugh thought of it when he and Yankovic were interviewed on that VH1 show Behind the Music. You'll hear Al speaking first and Mothersbaugh speak second. And I played the tape for Mark Mothersbaugh back when it came out, and uh, he seemed to enjoy it. He was like, wow, that's a really cool synth sound. I wish we could get that. I was in shock. Uh... It was the most beautiful thing I'd ever heard. And he was, he seemed to enjoy it. He could have been lying, but I don't know. He sort of re-sculpted that song into something else. And, um, I hate him for it, basically. I'll never truly know whether or not Mark Mothersbaugh is being serious there, but it's definitely a testament to the power of a Weird Al Yankovic-style parody. And as it turns out, most of my favorite Weird Al songs fall into that category, I think in part because it's the type of parody that allows him the most creative freedom. It's easy to discount the musicianship of comic songwriters, especially when it comes to parody, but Al Yankovic is a brilliant songwriter and conceptual musician, and these types of parodies give him a lot of space to stretch. Biggest Ball of Twine is very much a stylistic parody, though I didn't even realize that at the time, and it's such a good stylistic parody, it so effectively channels the kinds of songs that it's paying homage to, that it really stands on its own as this engrossing, albeit ridiculous story, complete with a rousing, triumphant finale. Finally, at 7.37 early Wednesday evening as the sun was setting in the Minnesota sky. So The Biggest Ball of Twine in Minnesota is a style parody of the sort of long-form folk story song exemplified in famous recordings like Gordon Lightfoot's The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. With a couple of steel firms when they left fully loaded for Cleveland. Then later that night when the ship's bell rang, 
Could it be the north wind they've been feeling? And even more directly, it channels Harry Chapin's 30,000 Pounds of Bananas, and you can really hear the similarities if you listen to that song. So I want to talk more about this style of song and refer back to those two examples, but before we get any further into that, let's get grounded in the Weird Al song itself by going back through that first verse. Biggest Ball of Twine is an unusually long song, so I'm not going to be able to give it, you know, the extremely detailed Strong Songs treatment where we go over every single twist and turn, and instead I want to give a sense of the overall structure and how dense and interweaving it is, because that's the coolest thing about it. He winds new lyrics, melodies, and chord progressions all around and around and through one another. It's kind of like, I wish there was some sort of metaphor I could use here. Well, I had two weeks of vacation time coming after working all year down at Big Roy's Heating and Plumbing. So one night when my family and I were gathered around the dinner table, I said, kids, if you could go anywhere in this great big world now, where'd you like to go to? They said, Dad... We want to see the biggest bottle of twine in Minnesota. They picked the biggest bottle of twine in Minnesota. So there you have it, the first verse of the song. Each subsequent verse is longer and more complex, but that first verse contains the raw materials for the rest of the song, along with a few unique touches that actually only happen in the first verse. The biggest ball of twine in Minnesota is in the key of E-flat, and like I said, it's a through-composed story song. I've talked about a few through-composed songs on Strong Songs in the past, songs like Stairway to Heaven, Bohemian Rhapsody, but to explain the concept to anyone who didn't listen to those episodes and maybe hasn't heard the term before, a through-composed song is a song where there isn't a set repeating form. So it doesn't go verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, anything like that. Instead, it follows a constantly changing progression from start to finish. There may be melodies or chord progressions that repeat, but the form, the roadmap, it never stays static for long. It's through-composed. And that's actually one of the terms that you'll hear in the trailer for Strong Songs, if you've ever heard this show advertised on a different podcast. Through composed songwriting. So that's what that term means. So this song does have verses, but they're separated by a refrain rather than a chorus. That refrain being when they sing, The biggest ball of twine in Minnesota. Every time they sing that, that's the refrain. But I don't really think of that as a chorus. More importantly, each verse is a different length, and they all contain different chord progressions since the song is through composed. It never strays too far from the key of E flat, but each verse introduces new ideas, and I think that's key to what makes this song feel like more than just a song, but a story. So let's go back to that first verse and I'll start to show you what I'm talking about. A helpful way to think of it is to start with three chords and to treat those three chords as the foundation for the whole song. Those chords are E flat major, the one, A-flat major, the four, and B-flat major, the five. They're the three most basic chords in pop music, and they're the basic foundation for this song. 
Each verse is built on those three chords, but each verse adds new additions to that foundation, new ideas, new chord progressions, new variations. In fact, every verse begins the same way, an E flat, and then an A flat, and then an E flat again. That's a one, and then a four, and then a one. That's even more elementary. That's as elementary as it gets when it comes to folk or pop music, but then each verse goes in a slightly different direction. vacation time coming after working all year down at Big Roy's heating and plumbing. Everything about that intro and that opening phrase sets a certain expectation in a certain mood. It says, you know what this is. This is simple, honest music. The arrangement, incredibly simple. The chord progression, incredibly simple. It's deliberately low-key in a way that as a kid, I initially found boring, especially at the end of a whole album of slide whistles and zany voices and hyperactive antics. It was just so normal. Well, I had two so Weird Al's band is actually doing a great job here of playing it low-key, which is a hard thing to do well or noticeably well, since being low-key kind of means that you're fading into the background. But that's what they're doing, and they're doing exactly what they need to do. The band on this record consisted of three longtime Weird Al collaborators, Jim West on guitar, Steve Jay on the bass, and John Schwartz, known to fans as Bermuda Schwartz, on the drums. Those three guys are all masters of pastiche and imitation, and as someone who's now spent several years recreating and imitating all manner of different popular music, I can tell you how hard that is. These guys are some of the best at doing that. It's really amazing how many different sounds and styles they can pull off. Like just on this album, they recreate Dire Straits, Fine Young Cannibals, R.E.M., they do a pretty gutty blues, a funky shaft black exploitation theme, and now here at the end of the album, they seamlessly fade into the background for a chilled out country band. Ballad. UHF also features Rick Derringer on guitar, who also produced the album, and the fabulous Water Sisters, Julia and Maxine Waters, on backup vocals. The Water Singers are a legendary family of singers. They've sung with loads of huge acts over the years, and they really elevate this song when they come in later on, which you'll hear. Lastly, it features Kim Bullard on synthesizers. Bullard is a great keyboard player. He's also played with a ton of big acts. I mean, Elton John, the Doobie Brothers. He's on like every pop record in the 1990s, but he also recorded a lot with Weird and his synth playing is this song's secret ingredient. Uh, we'll get into it later and you'll, you'll hear what I'm talking about. So I'm going to focus more on this song's form and the way that it tells its story rather than the specific parts played by each musician, but I did want to shout them all out because at every turn this band does exactly what the song requires of them. Well, I had to vacation time coming after working all year down at Big Roy's heating and plumbing. So one night when my family and I were gathered round the dinner table, I said, kids, if you could go anywhere in this... So the thing that makes this song interesting to me is the specifics of each verse and how Weird Al inserts new chords, draws out resolutions, and adds new harmonic textures to underline whatever is currently going on in the story. So the first verse begins, like I said, with a one chord to a four chord, back to a one chord. It's just some table setting. Well, I had two weeks of vacation time coming after working all year down at Big Roy's heating and plumbing. But then he transitions to a chord that actually never happens again for the entire duration of the song. He goes down to a B flat minor. 
So one night when my family and I were gathered round the dinner table. And the melody really emphasizes that B-flat minor chord. It's a five minor, kind of an unusual chord, never happens again. Gathered round the dinner table, I said, kids. Now this next party stretches out. If you could go anywhere in this great big world now. Where'd you like to go to? So what he's doing there is he's going from an E-flat major to an E-flat dominant 7. Natural transition to the 4 chord. They said, Dad. And then finally he brings it around with the triumphant refrain that happens again and again in this song. We want to see the biggest ball of twine in Minnesota. So let me go through that chord progression again, because the thing is, that's the only time in this song that it happens. Aspects of it will turn up again in future verses, but never the whole thing, not in that order. So he starts on the 1, E-flat major, then goes to the 4, then back to the 1, and then he goes to the 5 minor, the only time that happens in the song, then he goes back to 1, then to 1 dominant, which is setting up the 4 major, then back to 1, and then he goes into the refrain. For all the ways that this song shifts and changes from verse to verse, the refrain stays the same every single time. Same chords, same lyrics, and same melody. And that's by design. It's a crucial aspect of this sort of long-form story song. The refrain functions very similarly in Harry Chapin's 30,000 Pounds of Bananas. That's the song that Biggest Ball of Twine is perhaps most clearly based on, and it does something very similar. He comes back again and again to the same phrase, and that phrase is the title of the song. So that's how it sounds at the beginning of the song, and then it comes up again and again and again over the course of the song. The same lyrics, the same title, the same basic melody, but of course it changes its meaning over the course of the song as things get wilder and wilder and wilder toward the end. Of mashed banana. So it's a structure that you probably understand implicitly, even if you haven't thought about it before, just because you've heard songs in this style. It's actually not dissimilar from a sea shanty structure where each verse is its own thing and the song anchors itself to a repeating refrain. I dreamed my love came in my sleep. And you can hear that lineage in what Gordon Lightfoot was going for with The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. That song definitely has sea shanty energy. The wind and the wires made a tattletale sound And the wave broke over the railing And every man knew as the captain did too T'was the witch of November come stealing So that's the lineage that Weird Al is drawing from with this song form, and it's a powerful lineage. It really orients you very quickly when you start listening to the song. The first time he sings that refrain, it's clear what's going on. The refrain is an anchor point. It's a bit of a reset button. Whatever's happened during the verse, the refrain brings us back to zero, and of course, it does that by returning to the title and to the subject of the song, the biggest ball of twine in Minnesota. We want to see the biggest ball of twine in Minnesota. 
The three chords in question are a D flat major to an A flat major to an E flat major. And that's a distinct, widely used chord progression that's actually come up an unusual amount of times lately on Strong Songs. It's called a double plagal cadence, and it's a go-to for many pop songwriters. It's one people tend to go to when they want to convey a sense of epic drama. It's not that important why a double plagal cadence is called that. I've even explained it before on the show. So here's what you need to know. D flat to A flat to E flat, that's the official chord progression of the twine ball. In this story, whenever that chord progression happens, it means we're thinking about the twine ball, we're regarding the twine ball, something related to the twine ball is happening. We want to see the biggest ball of twine in Minnesota. They pick the biggest ball of So let's get into the second verse and I'll start to show you how this all works in practice. We start with the same basic chord progression, 1 to 4 to 5, but then things begin to subtly change. So it's a subtle thing, but now that you're keyed into it, I bet you already heard that those four bars introduced an entirely new chord progression to the song. Pulled out of the driveway and the neighbors, they all waved goodbye. And so began our three-day journey. So kind of out of nowhere, he's going from one to one dominant seven to four to four minor and back to one. That's a totally new sound and that's a pretty distinctive cadence. Four minor going to one. You've heard that in a bunch of songs. It's this romantic, lush chord progression. This is actually one of only a couple of times that it happens in the song. It isn't a coincidence either that that chord progression accompanies the lyrics that it does. The romantic, emotional chords underline the neighbors all waving goodbye, and it helps establish the slightly off-kilter world that this song takes place in from start to finish. At every turn, the biggest ball of twine in Minnesota makes a lot out of a little. This is a world where the Minnesota twine ball is the most exciting destination a family could possibly choose for their vacation, and again and again there's this feeling that the world revolves entirely around this quest. So when I hear that lyric sung to that melody over that chord progression, and the neighbors, they all waved goodbye. I picture the neighbors all gathered out in the streets, dozens of them waving, holding handkerchiefs, crying like the crowds that watched the Titanic set out to sea. Pulled out of the driveway and the neighbors, they all waved goodbye. And so began our three-day journey. So we're actually still in the second verse here, and a few more things happen. They pick up a hitchhiker. And then we get another new chord progression, along with a new instrument. Soda. We're gonna see the biggest spot 
<laughs> so I hope you're starting to get a sense of what he's doing here and how it works. That was the most elaborate chord progression yet. It's actually maybe the most elaborate chord progression in the entire song. And yet again, it's a series of chords that never repeats and actually a few more chords that only happen this one time. We start on a D flat chord. I put in a slim Whitman tape. My wife put on a brand new hairnet. Kids were in the backseat jumping up and down yelling, are we there yet? Kind of going back and forth between a D flat and an E flat, which is kind of the, you know, the D flat is the sound of the twine ball. So we're conjuring that kind of magical sound. And then it just goes through this whole involved chord progression. And all of us were joined together in one common thought as we rolled down the long and winding interstate in our 53 to Soto. So there we're going A flat to F minor to E flat to C minor. Those minor chords never repeat again in the song. It's the only time they appear. And it, this whole thing is funny because as a kid, I never would have thought about any of this, about the fact that Yankovic was constantly extending his phrases, adding new melodies and chord progressions to each verse. But it's what makes the song so engaging when you listen to it, whether you realize that's happening or not. It's just like a good story. You never quite know what you're going to hear next. You're in a setting, you're in this kind of a steady key. He doesn't go too far outside of E flat, but he's always changing it and it keeps you engaged in this certain way. Even if you don't realize that you're hearing new chord progressions and new melodies, you're still hearing them and it's still having that effect. We're going to see the biggest bottle of wine in Minnesota. We're heading for the biggest bottle of wine in Minnesota. So I mentioned a new instrument earlier, and here on the second refrain, they've actually added a couple of crucial new elements that'll play a big role through the rest of the recording. First of all, that extended chord progression that I just talked about didn't just introduce new minor chords, it's also where Kim Bullard's synthesizers make their first appearance, kind of in the role of synth strings here at first, and synthesizers are used to great effect throughout the rest of this recording. It's not out front, it's just in the background, tying everything together. And then, hot on the heels of the synths, we get another new element, the choir-like backup vocals, beautifully performed by the Waters sisters. We're gonna see the biggest bottle of wine in Minnesota. We're heading for the biggest bottle of wine in Minnesota. Man, the Waters family singers really are amazing. They actually have a segment in that great documentary about backup singers that I love, 20 Feet from Stardom. And that sound they can get, it just instantly elevates any song that they're on. That's why you hire the Waters singers instead of just faking it or overdubbing yourself or something. They sound so good on this song and on this whole album. We're gonna see the biggest bottle of wine in Minnesota. We're heading for the biggest bottle of wine in Minnesota. So between that extended length, the more complex chord progression, the subtle synths and unsubtle new backing choir, the whole thing escalates through that second verse, and that second refrain marks the end of the story's first act. As we enter the story's second act, the journey is underway. We couldn't wait to get there, so we drove straight through for three whole days and nights. Of course, we stopped for more pickled wieners now and then. <laughs> okay, so just briefly, he keeps underlining that joke, right? That you'd be so excited to go see the Minnesota Twine Ball that you'd drive straight through for three whole days and nights, or that right at the start of your trip, you'd see someone hitchhiking with a sign that says Twine Baller Bust. Like, everyone in the world is just so excited and infatuated with the 
Minnesota twine ball. And of course, he also comes back to the pickled wieners because Weird Al is but a man, and the words pickled wieners are funny, and so he's going to say them as many times as he can. Wait to get there, so we drove straight through for three whole days and nights. Of course, we stopped for more pickled wieners now and then. This third verse starts the way the other ones do, with no real melodic or harmonic curveballs, and then out of nowhere, as he starts to reminisce about family trips gone by, it shifts into yet another new mode. From all the places where we've already been, like Elvis Arama, the Tupperware Museum, the Bull Weevil Monument, Cranberry World, the Shuffleboard Hall of Fame, Poodle Dog Rock, and the Mecca of Albino Squirrels. <laughs> Parks, wax museums, and a place where you can drive through the middle of a tree. Seen alligator farms and tarantula ranches, but there's still one thing we gotta see. So we're actually still not done with the third verse. These verses get longer and more involved with each subsequent one, but I just want to go over that. So he goes into this classic chord progression that I actually really like to use, and I wonder if the reason that I like to use it is because I listened to this song so much as a kid. It's a kind of yo-yo progression, that's how I think of it, because it goes to four, and then to one, and then to five, and then to one, and then to four, and then to one, and then to two, and then to five. So it's not a super outside chord progression, but the way that he arranges it along with the melody makes it feel very different from the rest of the song. Like Elvis Arama, the Tupperware Museum, the Bull Weevil Monument, Cranberry World, the Shuffleboard Hall of Fame, Poodle Dog Rock, and the Mecca of Albino Squirrels. As a kid, it was a great source of pride that I could memorize lyrics like this. The sillier and more arcane, the better. And I memorized this list of bizarre American roadside attractions despite not knowing what most or maybe any of them were. But now I do know, and I will tell you. Elvisorama is a now-defunct Elvis museum located outside of Las Vegas. The Bull Weevil Monument is a monument in Enterprise, Alabama to the Bull Weevil, the arrival of which in 1915 forced local farmers to switch in 1916 from cotton to peanuts, which saved the local economy. Cranberry World is a now-defunct museum run by the drink company Ocean Spray in Plymouth, Massachusetts. The Shuffleboard Hall of Fame is located in Clearwater, Florida. Poodle Dog Rock is a cool one. It's a rock shaped like a poodle, located in Valley of Fire State Park in Nevada, and the Mecca of Albino Squirrels is most likely a reference to only Illinois, though there are a number of towns that boast a population of albino squirrels, including Marionville, Missouri, Kenton, Tennessee, Brevard, North Carolina, and Exeter, Ontario. Like Elvis Arama, the Tupperware Museum, the Bull Weevil Monument, Cranberry World, the Shuffleboard Hall of Fame, Poodle Dog Rock, and the Mecca of Albino Squirrels. We've been to Ghost Town, Steam Parks, Wax Museums, and the place where you can drive through the middle of a tree scene, alligator farms, and tarantula ranches, but they're still... So I'm not sure if I would call this section a bridge, but it's definitely an accelerant. It puts the song in a new gear. ball exit 50 miles. Oh, the kids were so happy they started singing 99 bottles of beer on the wall for the 27th time that day. They're so close, just 50 miles away, and the kids are so excited that they start singing 99 bottles of beer on the wall for the 27th time that day. And as it happens, the number 27 is actually a really important number to Weird Al. Any weirdologists out there certainly perked up when they heard the number 27. It turns up in so many of his songs. Seemingly any time he needs to go to a random number, 
he picks the number 27. He's wearing a jersey with the number 27 on the cover of Running With Scissors. He repeats the title of one of his songs 27 times while singing it. There are even some more unlikely sightings, like songs that were recorded on the 27th day of the month, or the fact that one song runs for 27 seconds after the music stops. It's kind of everywhere, and it's a fun thing to know, especially if you're going to be watching the new Weird Al movie that's coming out. I'm definitely going to be watching that movie. And that number, 27, will almost certainly be something to keep an eye out for. At any rate, they're 50 miles away from the twine ball. Everyone's jazzed. The song is cooking along. And that beautiful ball is so near, you can almost smell it. So we pulled off the road at the last chance gas station. Got a few more pickled wieners and a diet chocolate soda. On our way to see the biggest spot of twine in Minnesota. If you're anything like me, you're probably unexpectedly wrapped up in this story. I mean, after all that driving, they're almost there. Finally, at 7.37 early Wednesday evening as the sun was setting in the Minnesota sky. (laughs) Out in the distance, on the horizon, it appeared to me like a vision before my unbelieving eyes. So here we are at last, the dramatic first sighting of the twine ball. This is the fourth verse, and it's shorter than the other ones and less involved, but it's maybe the most dramatic verse of all. It starts a little bit quieter than the other verses, but with this steadily increasing wash of synths, these ethereal, shimmering synthesizers that layer on top of one another over the course of the verse. And each verse has introduced a new chord progression or melodic idea. In the fourth verse, it's not just new synthesizer sounds. As the twine ball finally comes into view and this beautiful synth brass French horn sound comes in, he works in that dramatic double plagal cadence to signal our arrival. We've made it. We're here. Finally, at 7.37 early Wednesday evening as the sun was setting in the Minnesota sky. On the horizon it appeared to me like a vision Before my unbelieving eyes We parked the car and walked with our filled reverence Toward that glorious huge majestic sphere This song is a goof. It's a Weird Al song, so of course on some level it's a goof. Though it's a lower key goof than Weird Al is normally known for, it is still a goof. And there's been a hint of irony to every twist and turn of this story, and that's where the song's humor comes from. It's almost serious, but of course, it's all a little bit ridiculous. But the thing that makes it magic to me is the fact that even at its silliest, this song is a little bit earnest. And here, as the narrator finally beholds that glorious, huge, majestic sphere, This is where the song has almost dropped the bit entirely. Those synths, I swear it's those synths, the way they conjure this scene, they make it feel magic. They make it feel real. And as a kid, I found this verse so enchanting. I could see this in my mind's eye. This was the moment when I realized that I loved this song, when I realized what was going on, when the story really had taken hold of me. And I really can see it even today. A deep magenta sunset, light casting ever longer shadows across Midwestern fields, and suddenly, on the horizon, a shape rising up against the fading light. This may sound silly, but I swear it's true. My whole life, I've thought about that twine ball. It's always just kind of been there in the back of my imagination. What would it really look like? What would it be like to actually go there? 
And so, 30 years after I first heard Weird Al sing about it, I decided to find out. Hello everyone, I'm in a rental car en route to Darwin, Minnesota, ready to see the biggest ball of twine in Minnesota to get the true experience from the song. I'm in the car with my partner, Emily. Emily, are you as excited as I am? I don't even think that's possible. (laughs) It's true, I am pretty excited. I've been looking forward to this for days. And here we are, it's about to happen. And I'm gonna record the moment when I first see the twine ball which is a pretty a pretty big moment for me. This is something I've been looking forward to for like 30 years, <laughs> which is kind of kind of a crazy kind of a crazy thing to have be true. Welcome to Darwin. There's the sign. We're passing it right now. There is a ball of twine on the Welcome to Darwin sign. All right. I see a liquor store. I see a uh, gas station. I see a sign that says See it in Darwin, the ball of twine. We are now entering Darwin, Minnesota, crossing the railroad tracks. There are balls of twine on all of the street signs. And I see what looks like, I see what looks like an extremely large ball of twine. One might even say the biggest ball of twine in Minnesota. Here we are, ladies and gentlemen, we have arrived. Yes, on these hallowed grounds, open 10 to 8 on weekdays, in a little shrine under a makeshift pagoda, there sits the biggest ball of twine in Minnesota. I tell you, it's the biggest ball of twine in Minnesota. This past summer, my cousin was getting married outside St. Paul, Minnesota, and we were flying out for the event. My mom's whole family is from the Twin Cities, so I spent a lot of time in the state of Minnesota, which is probably one reason that this song has always appealed to me. So as Emily and I were planning our trip, I realized, wait a minute, we're actually going to be an afternoon's drive away from Darwin, Minnesota, home of the Minnesota Twine Ball, and, well, there was no way that we weren't going to rent a car, book an extra night in the hotel, and make the trip. And so it was that on a clear September afternoon in 2022, we made a pilgrimage of our own west of the Twin Cities to Darwin, home of the Darwin Twine Ball, a 17,000-pound ball of sisal twine rolled by one man, Francis A. Johnson, over the course of 29 years from 1950 to 1979. The Darwin Twine Ball held the title for biggest ball of twine in the world from then until 1994, and it retains both the title of biggest ball of twine rolled by one man, and of course, the more relevant title of Biggest Ball of Twine in Minnesota. I wouldn't be much of a podcaster if I didn't bring my microphone with me, and so while standing in front of the twine ball itself, I recorded some thoughts. I am standing in front of the biggest ball of twine in Minnesota. It's big. It's not as big as I pictured it as a kid. There aren't spotlights illuminating it, and you can't see it from the highway, but it is pretty big. So this ball was rolled by Francis Johnson. There are tributes to him and pictures of him around. It's actually more impressive in real life than it is in the photos. It's pretty impressive. I mean, it's really big when you're standing next to it. And I think that's actually kind of the profound thing about it. And that's really what the song is about. That really hits home when you're standing here looking at it. There are so many things like this in America, these roadside attractions that are just kind of peculiarities that people come and see. And when you're actually looking at them, it really does 
bring home the reality of what you're looking at, the sort of huge physical object in front of you, this giant ball of twine. It's very weird that this one guy just sort of decided that he was gonna roll a huge ball of twine. But that's what he did, and it's here. This is the proof of this one man's strange ambition. And that's really, I guess, what the song is about. I don't think I understood that when I was a kid, but I definitely understand it now just standing here. Standing there, looking at the twine ball, I realized the question that Weird Al is about to ask is kind of profound. What on earth would make a man decide to do that kind of thing? Oh, what on earth would make a man decide to do that kind of thing? And so on the song's climactic bridge, Weird Al drops any hint of irony and asks the questions that actually come to mind when you behold something as impressive and strange as the Darwin twine ball. It's been a long journey to get here, but when the bridge arrives, it lands like a ton of bricks. Up to this point, the narrator has been describing his journey. He's been talking with the kids, packing up the car, picking up Bernie, going over the logistics of travel and buying food. And as he finally beholds the twine ball, the bridge takes us inside of his head. The narrator and Weird Al kind of merge. The line between them becomes more blurry, and they speak with the same voice, marveling earnestly at the sheer weird power of Francis Johnson's accomplishment. Going and seeing the twine ball in person really helped me understand that perspective shift, since I now know what it is and how it feels to spend a few days traveling before finally arriving and gazing upon the twine ball itself. As that shift between singer and narrator happens, the band crashes together through that repeated double plagal twine ball cadence, sort of stop time with long held notes in the backing choir. And the questions here are real ones. What was he trying to prove? Who was he trying to impress? Why did he build and how did he do it? Where did he get the twine? And what was going through his mind? And then, in a question that also serves as a possible answer, did it just seem like a good idea at the time? What was he trying to prove? I have stood where that narrator stood and where, according to pictures hanging up in the Twine Ball Museum, Weird Al himself has stood, and I'm here to tell you, when you see that Twine Ball, these are exactly the sorts of questions you find yourself asking. Did it just seem like a good idea at the time? We walked up beside it and I warned the kids, now you better not touch it, those ropes are there for a reason. It's all gravy from here, the journey has come to an end, and the remaining verses are more of a victory lap than anything else. Then we went to the gift shop and stood in line, bought a souvenir miniature, bought a twine, some window decals, and anything else they'd sell us. In another case of life imitating art, I can tell you that Emily and I did indeed go to the Twine Ball gift shop. We didn't have to stand in line. In fact, we had to call the number on the door in order for someone to come by and open up since we were the only ones there. But we did indeed buy a souvenir miniature ball of twine, some t-shirts, a mug, and well, pretty much anything else they'd sell us. We even bought some postcards with a picture of Johnson standing next to his ball of twine and the text, Greetings from the Twine Ball. Of the many surreal moments in our visit, buying that postcard might be the most surreal. And I bought a couple postcards. Greetings from the Twine Ball. Wish you were here. Won't the folks back home be jealous? 
From here, we get a quick reprise of that yo-yo chord progression from an earlier verse, as Bernie resurfaces in the narrative just long enough to steal the family camera. I gave her camera to Bernie and we stood by the ball and we all gathered round and said cheese. Then Bernie ran away with my brand new Instamatic, but at least we got our memories. And then it's time for the story to come to its appropriately ignoble end. But I said with a smile, kids, this here's what America's all about. And when he says that, I kind of think he means it. Inside and I fell on my knees and I cried and cried and that's when those security guards threw us out. <laughs> you know I bet if we unraveled that sucker it'd roll all the way down the Fargo, North Dakota. Cause it's the biggest bottle twine in Minnesota. I'm talking about the biggest bottle twine in Minnesota. So like I said, this is really all just a big victory lap at this point. Everything after the bridge works that way. There's no new harmonic information, nothing dramatic happening in the melody or the arrangement. The story has been spun, the destination reached. We're just enjoying our time at the Twine Ball, marveling at and bearing witness to this grand, goofy thing. Well, we stayed that night at the Twine Ball Inn, and the morning we were on our way home again, but we didn't really want to leave, that was perfectly clear. The song draws out its conclusion long enough that I kind of feel like Al himself doesn't want it to end. But of course, like with any great song, the story doesn't end just because the song is over. You can always rewind the tape and start it again from the top. When I set out to make this episode, I wasn't sure why this song, The Biggest Ball of Twine in Minnesota, was my favorite Weird Al song, why it stuck with me all these years after I first heard it. Now that I've come to the end of the episode, I have a much stronger sense of it. This is a great song, not just as a joke, not just as a goof. It's proof that a story doesn't need to be tragic to be mythic, that humor can coexist with real heart. We begin with a family packed into a car, setting out on an adventure, and as their story gradually unravels, so too unravels the layers of playful irony surrounding the narrative, until at the end, it reveals a core of genuine wonder, awe in the face of all human accomplishment, no matter how seemingly random or mundane. It's a beautiful unspooling process that's like, uh, well, I guess I'm still trying to find the right metaphor, but you get what I'm saying. There are so many things that I love about Weird Al Yankovic, but in the end, I think that's the thing that I love the most. He takes every joke he writes as seriously as it needs to be taken, and he applies his musical talents with equal rigor to lunch meat themed lyric rewrites, polka medleys, and, when the time is right, earnest tributes to the oddities of America's roadside attractions. Life isn't all epic love stories and tragic tales of loss. It's mostly just a bunch of weird, interesting junk that can be just as profound and important as the most celebrated literary work if only you take the time to pull off the highway, get out of your car, and take a look. Weird Al understands that on some deep, fundamental level, and that's what makes him and this song great.
And that'll do it for my long overdue episode on Weird Al Yankovic. Thanks so much for listening. I really hope that you liked this episode. It was obviously a more involved production than most of the episodes that I make, but it was really special and a very fun process. And I really did learn a thing or two from the journey. This episode requires a few more special thanks than usual. So thanks to Emily Williams for travel companionship, production assistance, and color commentary. Thanks to Chris, the very nice gentleman who came over to open up the Twineball Museum and gift shop just for us. We hope we made it worth your while with the absurd amount of merch that we bought. And thanks to the town of Darwin, Minnesota for hosting such a wonderful attraction as Francis Johnson's massive ball of twine. If you're ever in the area, I really do recommend visiting. They actually do an annual twine ball festival every summer, and I mean, I'm not saying I'm not going to be at the next one. Final thanks, as always, to all of you for listening and to all of the patrons and donors who help support me making this show. You make it possible for me to go the extra mile, as it were, whenever inspiration strikes. So yeah, thanks for your support. If you liked this episode, if you like this show and you want to help me keep making strong songs, go to patreon.com slash strong songs to become a patron. Find a link for that as well as a link for one-time donations in the show notes. You can also just buy some merch or leave a podcast review or just tell some people about the show. Like if you see someone on social media or in a discord server you're in being like, hey, what are some good podcasts I could listen to? Recommend this show. It, it actually works. It gets people to listen. This was the 99th episode of Strong Songs, if you can believe it, which means that the next episode will be episode 100. I've got something very special planned. I think you're all going to like it. In the meantime, this episode's outro soloist is Casey Atkins, a Sydney-based guitar teacher and Strong Songs listener who took up my challenge for more listener-submitted outro solos, and he sent a solo along. He sounds great, and I'll leave the link to the outro solo play-along in the show notes for anyone else who wants to take a crack. That'll do it for now, so stick around for Casey, and I'll see you in two weeks for the 100th episode of Strong Songs. Do you have any final thoughts on the twine ball, Emily? I'm I'm just so happy to be here today, sharing this special moment and this special ball of twine with you. It does feel like a, a special thing that I'm glad we could do together. Mm-hmm. Now let's just hold hands and stare at the twine ball together. Sounds good. It's really big. It's so big. <laughs> kind of nubby. A little bit. Did you talk about that it's like wearing a little twine diaper. I mentioned that there was a net, mm-hmm. and also how it's kind of loops hanging off of it. Mm-hmm. It's not just all rolled up.